Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor here on staff, and uh, I'm actually not a, I'm not a huge Apple junkie, but did you guys all see the Apple Live event was this past week where they, Apple unveils all their new stuff for the year, uh, stuff like uh, a new deal with HBO, all kinds of new channels for Apple TV, and I'm not actually, I'm not advertising for them, just so you know. Uh, but one of the bigger things we got to look at uh, this week was their new Apple Watch. Did you guys see this thing, this Apple Watch? Uh, it's a watch that does pretty much everything your really expensive phone can do, but it's a watch, so it's different. Um, and I, I'm making fun of it, but truth be told, it's, I'm almost ashamed. I really, really want one of these things. Uh, <laughs> I know in my heart of hearts that this is not at all necessary for my life, um, and yet all of a sudden, my phone isn't enough. I want more. I want something new. I want the next best thing. Does that make sense? Technology is the worst about this kind of stuff because it's, it's, always, it's impossible to be content with technology. It's either outdated, it can't do everything you want it to do, and it's, it happens immediately. But my problem, my problem, is not technology. It's that I'm a human being. <laughs> none of us, none of us is ever content with pretty much anything in our lives. Have you ever noticed that? Is there anything more universal to the human condition than a lack of contentment? <laughs> we always want what comes next. And, and it works on a small scale in our lives. You can see it there. And you, it works on a large scale in our lives. And, I mean, literally, today, uh, my wife and I get to go to a concert, which, like, never happens. We're really excited about it. And I caught myself this morning thinking, okay, if I can just get through this sermon, my life will be good. Um, <laughs> and you didn't think pastors thought that way, but we do. Um, and that we do that kind of stuff all the time, right? Just think, think about your week. If I can just get through this tough week at work, if I can just get through this homework assignment, whatever it is, then I'll be good, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. And, and when we don't have that smartphone or whatever, I know there's like five of you out there, you don't have that, and all you want is that phone so you can text your friends. That's like your biggest problem in life. When you can't drive, all you want is to get that driver's license so you can go where you want. And it's like there's, there's, an, there's a variable. When, when I get X whatever X is for you, then I'll be happy. And, and this works on a large scale in our lives. And if you're in school right now, I think you feel this uniquely. Um, if you're in school right now, doesn't it feel like your whole life is geared toward your next step? If you're in elementary school, you're thinking about middle school and then high school and then college. And then in college, you're thinking about your career, and if I can just get a foot in the door in that industry or that company or that grad school, whatever, there's always a next step. But soon, just to let you know, that's not enough either. You've got to move up the ladder now. And if I can just get that promotion or that new job. I was talking to someone who has a friend who just became uh, the CEO of a major division of a huge national company. And less than a year into this new job, he's already thinking about how to get that next promotion. <laughs> this job, which by all accounts is a tremendous accomplishment for this guy, it's still not enough. And it's the same with money. There's almost never enough money. Each promotion moves you into a new tax bracket where everyone around you still has more. You're always behind. And the proof is in the pudding that this is a universal human problem because you can ask a middle school student and a multi-billion dollar CEO the same question, what will make you happy? And you will get a different version of the same answer, I want what comes next. This is a universal human problem and we all feel this lack of contentment with our lives every single day. And it's dangerous to live this way. 
Because it leads to a deep, deep disappointment with life now. Because you can't be happy and you won't be happy until you get what's next. And someday, sooner or later, what comes next won't come. You're too old. You're not talented enough. You're not lucky enough. What is a midlife crisis if not the painful realization that despite your best efforts, you are not content with your life? You want more and you realize that half of your life is over. Or even worse than that, you'll get what you want one day. You'll arrive. You'll reach that mountaintop that you've been working for for years and you'll find that you are still miserably discontent. Now there's a sense in which the Corinthians in our text this morning were, were struggling with something of the same thing. They wanted, spiritually speaking, what came next. So they're ditching their marriages and they're quitting their jobs, whatever they thought was getting in the way of what came next in their own spiritual growth. And it was having disastrous consequences in their lives. And they began to think that because God saved them through the gospel, that he had some glorious and better calling for their life. He had a better version of their lives than what they had when he called them and what they had right now. And Paul's saying to them, stop. Stay where you are because God has you there for a reason. And Christians, we're not immune to this today. Many of us live our lives disappointed that God isn't giving us what we want. And we thought that God's call on our lives, which is another way of saying we thought when we came to faith that life would be easier or better or more manageable or clear and it didn't happen. And we're discontent and we're disappointed. But here's the thing. It's the thing Paul's teaching in this passage that we just read, and it's what we all need to hear this morning and be reminded of. We might be disappointed with where our lives right now. It doesn't matter how old you are, you're single, you're married, whatever. You might be disappointed with the way your life is going or the way your life is turning out. But God is not disappointed with your life. God is not disappointed with your life. In fact, he wants to use your life right now. Not your life when you get this or you become that, but your life right now in ways you probably don't even realize. You are already in a place in your life that God wants to use. He isn't disappointed. He's ready to use you now. But we miss this because we have forgotten, I think, three things that Paul reminds us of here. When we have Christ, when God calls us to faith and to life with him, we have to know and remember at least these three things to live a contented life in Christ. So if you haven't turned to 1 Corinthians yet, do that now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start again in verse 17. I want to reread the first few verses together. Here's how Paul begins. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And again, Paul's reminding the Corinthians that where they are now is what God cares about. Where they are now is what God cares about. Stay where God has assigned you. And then he gives the example of circumcision. This is an example he's giving. And one of the great dividing lines of the kind of the Roman world Uh, between Jews and Gentiles was circumcision. Uh, Jews circumcised and most other cultures did not. So Paul is saying, basically, were you a Jew when you were called? When you came to faith in Jesus, were you a Jew? That's great. Stay a Jew. 
Were you a Gentile when you were called? Were you a Gentile when you came to faith in Jesus? That's fantastic. Stay a Gentile. God does not prefer one over the other. He's called both to live equally a life of obedience to faith, to keep the commandments of God. And and this is really a basic principle, guys, of Christian calling. God calls people to himself in faith in various positions in life, young, old, married, widowed, any and all stations of life, without valuing one over the other. Basic principle. And as straightforward as that principle sounds, hidden there is a principle of the Christian life that we cannot miss. It's a promise, really, of the Christian life that we cannot miss. And and this this is how we've summarized it. You don't have to be somebody else for God to use you. You don't have to be somebody else for God to use you. You are already who God wants you to be. Now, I say that. Take sin out of the equation, okay? When you are breaking the commandment of God, God is obviously not content with that, and he's made a promise to help you and deal with that sin in radical ways. But take sin out of the equation, and this statement is absolutely true. You are already who God wants you to be. In other words, God is not waiting on you to become somebody else before he's ready to use you. Now, obviously, we live in a time and a place. Here's why this is important. We live in a time and a place where no one is content with you where you are right now. I mean, the message in most of the media that we consume as a culture today is basically, the underlying message is basically, until you look like this, until you have this, until you get this, you really haven't arrived. You really aren't complete. You really aren't worthy. You really shouldn't be content. But this product or this service will get you there. Thank you, Chet. He was there before I was. God has never felt that way about you. Okay? And yet we often get angry at God for not changing the things about us that we think are a hindrance. Not changing the circumstance in our lives that make us uncomfortable or that are difficult. But the thing is, God saved you. Not some ideal version of you, whatever that even is. He called you, he saved you. You are already the person he wants you to be and the things in your life that make you, you. Things like your race, your gender, your age, your stage of life, your marriage, your singleness. Those are good things God is ready to use. And Paul is saying God called you there. He equipped you there. You have gifts and opportunities because of who you are now. Don't be discontent with where you are, you are right now because God is not discontent. Now, the struggle looks different in everybody's life. Maybe you feel that your youth is an obstacle in your life. You're thinking, when I'm older, when I have more experience, then God can use me, then my life will have meaning and value. And in many ways, the voices around you are reinforcing that, even if they don't mean to. I mean, that they're preparing you for adulthood. Uh, that's not a bad thing, that they're doing that. But don't forget that God has called you and and says that your life and your leadership and your influence is important right now, no matter how young you are. And one of the real traps of being a young person is that your whole life is so future-oriented. Now, we talked about this before, but this is something, there's something unique about being young, and I've gotten caught in this trap too. We get so preoccupied with the future. There's so much life ahead of you that it's hard not to get excited about what's possible, but don't get so distracted by how God might use you in the future that you neglect how God wants to use you now. God is not 
looking at your youth. He's not looking at your inexperience and your development as something that you need to get through before real life and real faith can take place. He's got you exactly where he wants you, and your faith is relevant there. And he is much more concerned with your faithfulness now than your success and your plan then. There are opportunities for your faithfulness and your growth in your life. If you're a young person right now, with your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, with, with in the classroom, that you will not have again. God's ready to use those things now. Now, maybe you're on the opposite side of the spectrum. You're, you feel you're too old to have meaning, a meaningful life for God. That's what you think. You, you've recently retired, maybe. You're struggling with the purpose of your life. Your body is beginning to fail you. You don't even know uh, what your contribution is anymore. Listen, God was not more pleased with you. Nor were you more useful to him when you were younger. I want to say that one more time because it's, it's, we, don't, we, don't, we miss this. God is not more pleased with you. And you were not more useful to him when you were younger. God does not have a retirement age in his kingdom, Okay? Our culture, and, and it's so strange because most of the world is not this way, but our, our culture looks at age as a liability. Youth and beauty are lifted up as ideals for everybody, even if you aren't young anymore. And in God's eyes, your age is a gift to the church. It's not a liability. God has a purpose there, not only for you, but for the people around you, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, the whole church family, God's call on your life is a gift to us. We need you, not to spite your age, but because of it. Maybe you don't feel too young or too old. Maybe there's something in your life that you think is just too hard. It's just too difficult for God to use you. There's some kind of chronic illness, maybe, or a depression that you struggle with. Maybe, maybe a past pain that you don't know how to get over, a loss of a spouse or a loved one. And you can't see any redemptive possibilities in your life right now. God doesn't, I want to be clear, God does not cause our pain. He does not cause our brokenness. But he has a tremendous and glorious purpose for them. In fact, the hardest things about us, the things that we wish in some ways we didn't have in our lives, we wish these things did not come to define us to a certain extent, are often at the heart of how God uses us. Have you ever noticed that? Think about it this way. There's a reason that some of the wisest people some of the most contented people, the people that you want to be around, the people that you want to be like, most of them have gone through very difficult things. There's a reason for that. It's because God doesn't let those things get in his way. And he often calls us and assigns us in the midst of those things and gives them a meaning and a purpose that we could not have foreseen. We're so quick to feel discouraged and disappointed with who we are, with the life and the identity that God has given to us. And if you haven't felt that yet, just wait, because you will. But no matter where you find yourself today, you are already who God wants you to be. You don't have to be somebody different for God to use you. Paul gives us a second principle uh, here that we cannot miss, and it's in, the, it's in the next few verses. So look at verse 19. Paul continues. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. Now stop there for a second. This is another basic outworking of a Christian understanding of calling. Just as you don't need to be somebody else, there's no more inherent value 
in one station in life, in one gender, in one age, in one ethnicity than over any other. You're already who God wants you to be. In the same way, there is no more inherent value in one kind of work over another. You don't have to do something different for God to use you. You don't have to be someone different. You don't have to do something different. Now, Paul proves it by giving the example of a bondservant. Now, the word here can also be translated slave, but I think bondservant is better because there are significant differences between a first century bondservant and the colonial American slave that we think of when we use that word. But the point is there was no lower form of work in the ancient world than a bondservant. Now, you basically became a bondservant because you fell into debt. There was no bankruptcy law in the ancient world. There was no uh, help for you. If you defaulted on your debts, your only recourse was to sell yourself and maybe your family into slavery, into, into servanthood. You were the financial property of someone else. There were opportunities to buy yourself back and become free again, but that was difficult to do. Now, obviously, someone being the property, I need to, I need to say this, someone being the property of another person is completely unbiblical. That's not the biblical story. Every human being has inherent value as an image bearer of God. Christianity and slavery are diametrically opposed. But people have pointed to Paul here, and they said, look, Paul's supporting slavery by, by saying this. And that, I have to say, that's just wrong. The whole letter of Philemon, it's in your New Testament. It's a short letter that most people don't read. <laughs> it gives context here. Where Paul basically says to Philemon, who's a Christian owner of a Christian slave named Onesimus, he says, hey, Philemon, your faith is incompatible with owning a slave. You are, you are both brothers now in Christ. But here's the thing. Lots of bondservants came to faith. It's just what happened. And they were still bondservants. So like a good pastor, Paul's helping them think through what a life of faith looks like where they are right now. Obviously, the system of slavery that Paul is addressing here is wrong. But he still needs to help people where they are. And in my mind, it's absurd to say that Paul supports slavery by addressing slaves in his letter. If anything, he's doing the opposite. He's giving them value. And Paul is doing something profound here by using bondservants as an example. He's saying, your work bondservant is meaningful to God. Their culture was not saying that to them. But Paul says, in the gospel, this is true. God can use it. If you can become free, do it. Notice Paul says that. But if not, that doesn't make you a second-class citizen in the church or in God's eyes. Your work matters. And he goes even further in Colossians 3, where he says to bondservants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He is pointing out the profound dignity of these people in a society that did not see them that way. And he's giving eternal value to their work, saying that by doing what they're doing, they could serve the Lord Jesus. Now here's the point, okay, here's the point. After all that, if God can use that job, he can use your job. You don't have to do something different for God to use you. You already have work right now that God wants to use. Now there is one major difference between Paul's understanding of work and ours. In Paul's day, you pretty much didn't choose your job. It was given to you. Whatever your dad did, you tended to do. Now obviously things have changed incredibly. We live in a time and a place where you can actually choose your job. You can choose almost any job. You might not get the job, but you could try. 
And that can cause as many problems as it solves. And we feel those problems all the time. Many of us feel like we are in the wrong job or we are in the wrong industry, but we've got bills to pay. We feel trapped. We're underemployed. We're unemployed. And many Christians, even Christians who agree that God cares about work, you're following what I'm saying, you still feel like that isn't true of your work. <laughs> it's true of work, but not, not my work. And you're thinking, Andrew, sure, we're all doing something that God can use. Um, great. Uh, but you're a pastor. It's like, first of all, is that even a real job? Second of all, <laughs> I know you're thinking it, so I'm, I'm naming it. You're, it's like God is your job. Of course, of course God can use your job. My job, and you've said some version of this, my job isn't spiritual enough for God to use because I have a secular job. But here's the thing. God has an incredibly high view of your work, even that work that your society says is unimportant and even work that you say is unimportant. Even if it's work outside the church, imagine that. <laughs> work outside the church. In fact, the two words, just to prove this point to you, Paul uses two words here in this passage to talk about calling and work. He says work is a calling and is an assignment from God in verse 17. Those are, spirit, those are church words. Those are spiritual words. You're called to faith in God throughout the Bible. It's the same word. And the Spirit assigns gifts to you. Okay, same word. Paul's saying work is both a part of God's plan for your life and the Spirit gives you gifts to do your work well. Whatever you are doing with the majority of your life, now God wants to use it. He does not see your life in segments. Okay? There isn't church and then everything else that you do. All of your life is sacred to God and he wants to use it including your work, even if your work doesn't look spiritual. It is. Paul's reminding us that we need to see our workplace not primarily as a place where we work, but where also God is truly at work. And there's a contentment that comes with that that even the best job cannot give you. And again, maybe you're, st you're still not buying it. You're, you're, you can see how this applies you're, to a doctor who saves lives or a teacher who educates children, or to a stay-at-home mom who's raising kids. They, you're making a difference. That's really tangible, but your job is just a job. How is it helping anyone? One, one friend recently described his job this way to me. He says, I do marketing for companies that nobody cares about. <laughs> have you ever said something like that about your job? None of you are raising your hand, but I know you have. Here's the thing about work. It is much more helpful than you realize. Work is much more helpful than you realize. Almost any kind of work is extremely helpful. And I, I can't do this without just giving you an example. And Lester DeCoster is an author. He gives this example. He says, look at the chair you're lounging in. Imagine your chair's wood for this to work. <laughs> Could you have made it for yourself? How would you get, say, the wood? Would you go and cut a tree down? But only after first making the tools for that and putting together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood, and constructing a mill to do the lumber, and the roads to drive on from place to place. In short, a lifetime or two to make one chair. If we worked not 40, but 140 hours per week, we could not make for ourselves, from scratch, even a fraction of the goods and services that we call our own. Our paycheck turns out to buy us the, the use of far more than we could possibly make for ourselves in the time that it takes to earn that same check, work yields far more in return upon effort than our particular jobs has put in. 
Imagine, here's the real point. Imagine that everyone quits working right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pumps. Streets are no longer patrolled. And fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services end. Utilities go dead. In other words, this is how DeCoster concludes. He says, the difference between a wilderness and a culture is work. Work. It's helpful. (laughs) Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, there may be no better way to love your neighbor. And I would add, there may be no better way to serve God. Whether you are writing parking tickets, software, or books, than to simply do your work well. The gospel tells a great story about work. Just doing your work well is intensely spiritual and it's an intensely helpful thing for everyone and God can use it now. Now some of you, you really want to see your work this way but you're not doing the work you want to do and a bad economy the last few years has not helped and you're working but you have a hard time believing God can use it because well, you don't really like it that much. It isn't meaningful work for you and we don't all get to do what we love all the time. It's just true. If you're doing what, you're love to, doing what you love today, praise God, it's not a given. But there are seasons and sometimes there are long seasons where we don't get to do that. We don't all get to do what we love, but we can learn to love what we do. If we trust that God has a purpose for us there. Because we've all, we've all had bad jobs, okay? Everyone in this room has had a bad job. But none of us, I'm convinced, has, have had a job as bad as a bondservant. Paul is saying God can use that job. He can use your job too. If you can get a better fit, do it. That's Paul's principle in verse 21. But use wisdom and don't forget, no matter what happens, in two years, when you finally get that promotion or there's an opening in the company or the industry that you really wanted, tomorrow is still coming. And God has a purpose for you there. He is not waiting on what comes next. Regardless of your preferred future, you are already doing something that God wants to use. And by the way, this is all true. Everything we've just said is true. Even if you are not getting paid for what you're doing. You're a stay-at-home mom. Your work is spiritual. It's helpful. It's meaningful to God. And it's honoring to him. You're a student. You're investing in your education. And God is shaping you. And he's teaching you right now. That is helpful. That's spiritual work. You're unemployed, you're looking for work, but helping, you're helping more around the house in the meantime. While you look, you're leaning, you're, I'm sorry, you're learning to wait on God and trust in him. That is spiritual, that is helpful. That is meaningful work. You see, the whole point of what we're saying is that compensation, uh, though it's good and it's necessary, does not define the meaning of your life or your work. Because bond service didn't get a paycheck. But Paul says God can use that work. God is not waiting on a pay raise or on a promotion or a job to use you. He's not disappointed that for now you're not using your college degree in your job. Don't wait or fret on the things that, at the neglect of those future things at the neglect of what you're doing now. Okay, last point. For God to use you, you don't have to be someone else, you don't have to do something different, and you don't have to prove your worth. You don't have to prove your worth to anybody. Paul puts it this way in verse 22. He says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain 
with God. Paul's saying if you are a slave, then you are actually in Christ a full citizen of heaven. And if you are a full citizen of Rome when you were called, you're actually a slave. Don't forget, you're a slave to Christ. In other words, your value, your worth, your standing with God, your value, your worth, your standing with God, which by the way, these are all just different ways of talking about the Bible's word righteousness. Your righteousness has absolutely nothing to do with you, with who you are, or what you do. In Christ, your righteousness has nothing to do with who you are or what you do. The world roots value in who you are and what you do. In the modern West, the first question, what is it that you ask someone when you're getting to know them? What is it? First question, what do you do, right? Your worth is tied, in some ways, is tied up in how you answer that question. And we live in a world that is enslaved. The whole world is enslaved to proving its own worth to itself. Through your family, through your clan, or through your job. That's why Paul says here, don't be a bondservant of men. He says, do not be enslaved to what your culture tells you defines you. The reason you don't have to be somebody else or do something different or prove your worth is because you were bought at a price. You don't have value on your own. You have value because, theological word, it was imputed to you. It was reckoned to you. It was credited to you because of something Jesus did. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, his righteousness, his value, his standing, his worth is now yours. You don't have to use your age or your paycheck or your marriage or your singleness or your kids to prove your worth. It was proven for you on your behalf. You were bought at a price. Value is determined, okay, I'm going to give you a little economics lesson. Economics 101. Value is determined by how much someone is willing to pay. Do you want to know how much someone was willing to pay for your life? God sent Jesus, his only son, to die for you, to pay for you, to ransom you, that he might use your life now, right now. You have infinite value because an infinite price was paid for you. And you know what? Because of that, God is not ashamed to be with you where you are. Paul says, wherever God has called you, stay there. Don't miss this. Paul says, stay there, remain there with God. God is already where you are. He is not disappointed in you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to work with you. Whatever it is that you're doing right now. He's not embarrassed that you're old and he's not waiting on you to grow up and he's not waiting on you to fix your problems before he can use your life. And you know why? Because when he looks at you, if you have trusted Christ, he sees Jesus. That's a powerful thing. So you can stay where you are. You don't need to be somebody else or do something different, not because you're stuck, but because you've been given the status and worth that no amount of money and no amount of popularity and no amount of fame and no job description could ever, ever give to you. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. God is not disappointed with your life. He's not. And we can't be either. And we couldn't think of a better way to actually conclude this time. Um, in our February, in, in February, I'm sorry, we had a baptism service. And we literally got to see everything we've just said come to life. That God's call is for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you do. 
our, our team put a video together. And it's a beautiful picture of God meeting people exactly where they are right now. These are people who are putting their trust in Jesus to define their worth and not their age or their job or their looks and not anything else the world tells them makes them valuable. And I wanted us to see this because this is a picture, this is a promise of who we are in Christ. So let's watch together.